After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today by Matt Eddy. Matt's come in to discuss a lot of the rule changes that were announced by Major League Baseball this week in conjunction with the Major League Baseball Players Association. There's a lot of reaction out there, social media, traditional media, people on the street. A lot of people have thoughts on this. Part of the reason we wanted to bring Matt on is because he had some of the strongest reactions to some of the uh, rules changes announced yesterday, both in regards to roster construction, game management. Matt, when this came out yesterday, what was your overall thought? What was the biggest thing that stood out to you, both in terms of maybe a missed opportunity or a misjudgment in the way these rules were implemented? Yeah, my first thought, my first hot take here is that after all the posturing between the, the owners, you know, MLB and the Players Association, we got no DH out of this deal. Or the, specifically, the players did not get a DH. I know- In the National League. In the National League. And that's been a hot button issue, obviously. And I think it, it just so clearly benefits the players that I'm surprised they didn't insist upon it. That's uh, 9,500 plate appearances per season going to position players in the National League rather than pitchers and pinch hitters who currently occupy that playing time. You know, we saw Players Association make some other you know adjustments. We've seen now the rosters will be expanded to 26 players starting in 2020. So that is one additional job over the course of a full season. Right. But the cost is we're seeing 40-man rosters now reduced to 28 players in September, which means 12 guys per team who might have gotten a call-up, gotten some service time, gotten the additional money, no longer going to have that opportunity. September and, rosters. September rosters. And in conjunction with not getting a DH, I don't know if that one additional job that you're going to get starting 2020 really adds up to the 12 additional members who will get service time every September. Plus, you didn't get the DH on top of it, which would have helped a lot of your members as well. It seemed, again, like mm -hmm. the players union to me, did they get something? Yes, but what they got was not nearly equal to what they gave up or could have gotten. I think that's fair. Um, I'm not a fan of the, okay, I am a fan of September call-ups. I think it was a fun baseball quirk. Was it entirely fair? No. Did it slow down games in September with, the, with an acceleration of pitching changes? Yeah, it did. However, it also had some, some benefits to non-40-man roster players and even fringe 40-man roster players. No longer is the, is the AAA journeyman going to receive a reward call-up in September. You can't make a guy like that one of your 28 rostered players. And likewise, the fringe 40-man guys are not going to get any showcase innings or uh, at-bats in September anymore because there's not going to be room for them either. I understand wanting to not have a 40-man active roster for every game in September. But to me, there was a fix here that would have kind of helped everyone without, again, the union hurting their own membership and limiting the number of guys who actually get the opportunities to play in the major leagues. 
and I can't take credit for this, uh, Buck Showalter, I was at a press conference covering an Orioles-Red Sox game uh, in September of 2016, and September call-ups came up, and, and Buck Showalter and his press conference started talking about this, and it really resonated with me and has stuck with me, was that keep the 40-man rosters, but what you do is you designate the 25 guys you can use each series, and after each series you can take one guy out and one guy off, the 40-man roster guys still get their service time. They're still major leaguers. They're still there. They're members of the roster. It's just for each individual series, you designate the 25 guys you can use. Helps everybody. Gets rid of having you know 18 available pitchers, and some managers seem determined at times to use all of them during those games. But you also don't take away the opportunity of these guys. You mentioned yeah. the fringe guys who, ha who have earned a big league call based on performance, but mm -hmm. just because age, room on the roster, you know, they don't fit quite as one of those 25 best guys. And again, it just seems to me like that's a fix that would have helped everyone and the union just didn't do it. And it was, it would have been something worth pushing for and they just didn't do it. And it kind of boggles my mind that they gave up this many jobs, even in September, even for a lot of these guys who will never be called up again, mm -hmm. it's additional money for them that is significant. That's $75,000 for a lot of these it's, players, it's significant money. It's the difference between being a major league player and not for a lot of players in the, in the future. That's going to be the case. You, you can find examples of journeymen who've received September call-ups, and that's their only major league time. Cody Decker is an example of a, of a current guy who is, um, is, is well-known, has one September call-up with the Padres. That's it. That guy's not going to get called up anymore. It's, it, it's placing... The priorities of the major league players, the 40-man players, and disregarding the non-40-man players. And again, it is important to remember that the Major League Baseball Players Association is a union for 40-man roster players. It is not a players association who is in charge of covering non-40-man roster players. So yes, you are going to, first and foremost, in all cases, prioritize your members. And in the union's case, their members are only those 40-man roster players. But at the same time, you can do that without cutting off the legs of your future members. And it feels like the union, again and again and again, does not seem to grasp that. We saw it in the last round of collective bargaining, and we've seen it. They've accepted limits on draft compensation. They've accepted limits on international, uh, international signings. They accepted the luxury tax, which in effect <coughs> serves as a hard cap for a lot of teams. And going back a decade, they changed the Rule 5 exemption periods. They just continue to hurt their future members mm -hmm. without realizing that their fortunes are inextricably linked. If those younger players that can be signed for, you know, now instead of having to actually pay them what they could get on the international market, oh, I can have them for $2 million. A lot of teams are saying, yeah, I'd rather pay $2 million and wait five years than go spend $30 million on this veteran. And that is the correct calculation based on the money that's now allowed to be spent. Before, when it was, okay, you actually had to pay these international guys, those veteran guys, you might say, well, why would I pay $30 million for just using Yohan Moncada <laughs> as an example? As amazing and tooled up as he is, for a lot of teams, do I really want to pay $30 million plus another $30 million tax on top of that? $62 million, you know, I can give that to a veteran who can help me in these, these five years. All of a sudden, a lot of these guys, if they're not foreign professionals, well, you're not allowed to pay them more than five, ten million dollars. All of a sudden, that calculation becomes a lot easier. Yeah, I'd rather yeah. pay him five million and wait five years than pay this major leaguer fifty million. 
it's inexorably linked and the union just continues to not seem to grasp that or if they grasp it, they ignore it to their own detriment of their current members and their future members. And I think for a lot of people out there who have talked with agents, who have talked with players, this isn't a secret. The agents know it. The players, to a degree, know it. But it's just this cycle that that's frustrating. And so you just see this pattern of, again, fewer 40-man roster guys not pushing for the DH, which would have done more to help their membership, as you're saying, if that's their true priority, than just adding you know, the one extra guy right. over the course of the season <clears throat> and, and crushing the tw getting rid of the, uh, those, all those 40-man roster spots plus all the things they've accepted in terms of limiting compensation of non-40-man guys, it snowballs. It's all, it all has an effect on itself. You know, these 40-man roster members are not in a vacuum. And I think that the union at times, again, that's their prerogative. They are supposed to defend those guys. But you can do that without, again, cutting out the legs of the non-40-man guys, who are your future 40-man guys and your future members. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. <laughs> so that's my rant for the day. Um, but beyond that, uh, some of the changes to the actual gameplay, that's what's going to get most people talking about the rule changes, first and foremost. The three batter minimum rule is the most significant one. You, just to give our, our listeners a background, you have long been a proponent of this. I have long been an opponent of it. Now that it has been encoded, and it's important to note as well, this was something that was implemented unilaterally by the commissioner's office. Everything else was agreed to in discussions with the Players Association. I, I think technically they're going to f discuss it further to see about implementing it for 2020. This, the press release said it will be implemented. Now the Players Association, of course, is going to want to talk about it, but right. the way they worded it said, as of right now, it I, is scheduled to be implemented. I'm not a proponent of this rule. I am a proponent on something that would... Uh, stop the meddling in the middle innings, as I like to say. So take us through, you, you had proposed something uh, for an article on BA Online a, a, about a month ago now. Take us through kind of your thought process on what would be a more effective rule and from your perspective, the strengths and weaknesses of the rule that was put in place as it currently is. My proposal, I like the spirit of, of free substitution with pitching changes, you know, managers, want to seek the platoon advantage whenever possible, and that's fine, that makes sense. So, but rather than restrict pitching changes by batters faced, I think it would make more sense to allow that pitching change, but have that reliever enter with a penalty of a 1-0 count on the batter. Therefore, if that, if that pitcher throws a first pitch ball, now he's down 2-0 and, and in serious trouble. I think that's a more elegant way to approach it rather than mandate three batters or finish the inning. My biggest thing is I, and this is just me, I tend to blanch a little bit at things that change the game itself. I'm okay with some of the things that surround the game. For example, I, I applaud Major League Baseball for being willing to take the time down in between innings. That is something that they could have very easily played the we're the greedy corporation role, and we just want all the extra time in there to get the TV broadcast money and you know, be disingenuous about discussing pace of play while also accepting extraordinarily long inning change breaks. To their credit, they said, you know what? This is something that needs to be fixed. Let's take these down sub two minutes. 
That's a great change. That should be applauded. I'm fine with changes like that. I, I, you know, in terms of roster size stuff, you know, going from 25 to 26, none of that is the sky is falling. I also like what they did with uh, how they made sure that now what was formerly known as the disabled list, now the injured list, pitchers now, it's back to being a 15-day mm-hmm. injured list for them because that is something that stops some of the uh, shuffling, shuffling guys up and down and up and down and up and down. It makes the guys who get called up actually have to stay up for a full two weeks. And on the same, by the same token, the option assignments, when they go down now, it's now a 15-day minimum as opposed to a 10-day minimum. Those are all things kind of around the game, and they do influence the strategy. Same with limiting mound visits, bringing those down six to five. They, they do influence the strategy. There is an effect there, but they're not changing anything in terms of, again, when the pitch is physically thrown on the field. Who? It, it seems like those, again, are more working around the game. Again, it, they will have effects on roster construction, but they seem less direct. This, dictating how many batters an individual must face in gameplay, to me it feels like an overstep. And I understand no one likes the face a batter, pull them, face a batter, pull them, face a batter, pull them. But, but what I've long argued, what I've long talked about is to me it's a little bit of a, of a market solution. Teams who do that end up shooting themselves in the foot. I go back to the uh, Nationals-Dodgers postseason where Dusty Baker, I believe it was, ran through five pitchers in one inning, took his crowd out of it, took his defense out of it, it wasn't an advantage that he did something that hurt his team. Think back to, you know, again, a bit of a different situation because it's not relief, but this would affect this too. The Brewers in game five of the NLCS last year, yeah. Wade Miley comes out and faces one batter and they pull him. Well, the Brewers shot themselves in the foot with that because they had a tired bullpen. They knew they didn't have enough guys to get through nine innings. It was this bad move that did hurt them. Right. And a lot of times these teams that are doing this, that constant <clears throat> shuffle in and out, in and out, in and out, they wear out their bullpens, and it hurts them. So to me, it's it's a market solution. I don't I don't have an issue. And again, I'm not talking about okay, it's the eighth inning. You're up by two runs. There's a dangerous lefty up. You bring the lefty specialist in. He either gets him or he doesn't. Then you make the move. That's fine. You make a change here or there based on one situation. That's fine. But the run of three, four, five pitchers, you know, through an inning or two innings. That just hurts the team doing it. I'm okay with letting the market correct that. It hurts entertainment value as well, and that's more important to me. I, I, there's, there's nothing more dull when you're in the, the crux of a game in the 7th, 8th, or ninth inning when you just have these series of mound visits precipitating commercial breaks, precipitating bringing in a one-out left-handed batter, or pitcher, rather. And this is, what you mentioned about Miley is interesting because I think this rule might be aimed as much at opening, opener, shenanigans as much as it is like seventh inning left-on-left matchup situations. And what we have seen actually is that managers at the, high, at the overall level are steering away from this usage pattern. We are seeing relievers face more batters. We are seeing a decrease in the number of one out or one batter appearances. Even left-handed pitchers, just isolated left-handed relief pitchers are facing more batters per appearance. This, this is a trend that's been on the climb since 2015. And, and I think in general, you're right, it is a good thing to have teams saying, okay, when we develop guys in the Myers, let's develop guys who can actually get more than one batter out, be a complete pitcher, be someone, if I'm a lefty, hey, I also have the stuff to get righties out. Right. I, I do in general 
think, yes, it is better to have guys who are actual complete pitchers and put them in games than just the guy who's limited can only really do one thing. I just have an issue with it being dictated to from the top. I will say that, again, you talk about the entertainment value versus, you know, again, the how much do you, you know, baseball purist would just want the game to stay it is. And, and, and for me, that's, I admit, there's a little bit of a struggle there where, yes, it is a market solution that a lot of teams that are shuffling like that are just shooting themselves in the foot, but some of them don't seem to ever be realizing it, and so they keep doing it, and so the entertainment value does drive itself down. So I, I do think there is the confluence there, but, but I also want to hit on what you said about the opener and how this kind of takes a shot at that too. I think this rule, but also in conjunction with now when you option a guy down to the minors, it's a 15-day assignment. That changes it. J.J. Cooper and I uh, talked about this a little bit last year with the Rays and people talking about emulating the opener. And the point we made is that not every team can do this. You have to have an enormous amount of optionable relievers that you can bring up and down and up and down and up and down in order to make this work. By making the option assignment period a little bit longer, I actually think that will help to, you know, disincentivize teams from doing it because they're not going to be able to shuffle pitchers in and out as quickly. Those extra four or five days do make a difference. Um, in the past, there was a provision that a player didn't have to spend the full 10 days in the minors if he's replacing an injured player on the major league roster. So, <laughs> Right, and that's the other thing. I'm sure I'm, that's probably still intact. And the three batter minimum, it should be noted, it, I should say it's a three batter minimum, or if you get to the end of the inning. Correct. So if the guy comes in and gets the double play ball, it's only two out, it's only one batter, mm -hmm. but he gets to the end of the inning, it, it's fine. He's met his requirement. And I do like that. But, yeah. but with this, there was the provision that says, you know, the three batter minimum or to the end of the inning. With the exceptions of uh, injury or illness, I'm kind of wondering <laughs> how many uh, fake injuries we'll be seeing on the mound uh, yeah. during games. So, so I, I agree in one sense that. I like the spirit of this three batter rule. I just don't like the execution. I do want to see mid-inning pitching changes curbed by whatever means necessary. So if this is the solution that the parties think is the best, then sign me up. It's not what I would have done, but sign me up. The bigger picture here, beyond just these rules changes, actually, I'm sorry, before I get into the bigger picture, I do want to talk about the All-Star Game and the Home Run Derby. The Home Run Derby intrigues me because that $1 million prize, I went back and looked at it. That's a larger salary than what <laughs> six of the eight home run derby contestants made last year. So I think sometimes as fans in general, there's a sense of, oh, they're all making you know millions and millions and millions, an extra $1 million is not going to incentivize. But it does, especially for a lot of the players who are the young stars of the game. For now, three hours of work? <laughs> for, and again, for, it's mostly going to be, look, is this going to be what finally gets Mike Trout into a home run derby at his you know, 30 plus million dollar annual deal? No. But for a lot of the younger guys who, again, we talk, you know, Aaron Judge made five, just over 500 grand in 2017 as a rookie of the year, he won the home run derby. If he had won the derby, almost doubles his salary. You talked about the guys who were in the derby last year, Kyle Schwarber, Alex Bregman, Jesus Aguilar, Reese Hoskins. This $1 million was more than any of them made last year. So I think it will continue to incentivize Let's get the best young players and give them an opportunity to showcase themselves. I did like that change. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's also prize money for the All-Star winning team, or the prize money is increased for the team that wins the All-Star game. I didn't actually realize there was you know, cash prizes associated with the All-Star game. That's, that's cool, too. $2.5 million. And the final thing that I, I liked was 
the two-way player designation. In terms of players having to be designated, either pitcher or position player, you have the two-way player. And I think prior to last year, I would have been like, this seems unnecessary. But what we saw last year with the rise of position players pitching, it's fun in spurts. But last year it got to be, this is editorializing here, it got to be a joke last year. Scott Kingery, his inning pitching for the Phillies last year was one of the most embarrassing things I've ever seen on a Major League Baseball diamond. Everyone involved in that should have been ashamed of themselves. So I'm okay with Major League Baseball, and this is kind of my one exception. I say in general, I don't like dictating some of the in-game stuff as much as maybe they, they have with you know, the three-batter minimum rule being an example. This is one I'm okay with in saying, look, if you want to have position players pitch, I mean, it said any game in which the losing or winning team by more than six runs when the player enters as a pitcher, I'd make that larger. I want to make that nine runs. I want to make that ten runs. It has to already be a blowout. We saw the Rays use position players in a game. They were leading in extra innings last year when they had available pitchers. Stuff like that just, it, it's not good for anyone. It really takes away from the competitive spirit and kind of the integrity of the game. So I, I'm okay with this one. Where are you? I agree. Um, I, don't think, I don't think I really have anything to add there. Like, I think it's, what's especially galling about position players pitching, and it's not new to anybody who follows this, it's the fact that teams are already carrying more pitchers than they ever have. You have a 13-man bullpen, and you're still sense. using a position players to pitch before you need to. It, it was problematic. So I, I will say this. You know, as we talk about all this, the truth is when I look through all the, tr all the changes that were made, Inning breaks being reduced. Yeah, I like that. Mound visits being reduced. Now, I'm in on it. Single trade deadline July 31st. I also like that. I'm also in on that. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, stay tuned up at BA.com soon. We're going to have a uh, ranking of the best waiver trades of all time, kind of an in memoriam uh, now <laughs> that the August waiver trade is dead. Is that, a, is that in effect for this season? Or, yes, or that is in effect for this season. Home run derby being moved, uh, the, the uh, winner receiving $1 million. I like that. The truth, most of the changes for 2019, I'm in agreement with. I like. I think they're smart, and I think it makes sense that both Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association agreed to them. Again, 2020, when it gets a little bit dicier, going to 25 from 25 to 26. Okay, fine. Not not you know not the end of the world. Probably inevitable. But the 40-man roster, you know in September being reduced to 28, the fact that the Players Association, it's, that it, this is what they settled on. To be clear, the 40-man roster is not affected. September rosters are affected. S September, September You keep 40 saying 40-man. I just I'm want sorry, to make sure right. we don't confuse no, you're right. the listener. I need listener. to clarify. You're right. That's on me. The September 40-man active roster limit, again, I'm fine with not having 40 guys actually eligible to play a game at a given time, but the union could and should have done a lot better with this. Mm -hmm. Capping the number of pitchers that can be on a roster. I, I'm mixed on that, but I get it. Love it. it. I, I, I would cap it at 11. Old school. <laughs> no, I think 12 is probably the, the compromise. And the designation of the two-way player, limiting when position players can pitch, I'm, I'm okay with it. Again, my, my thoughts mm -hmm. on that have evolved. It's fine. Um, and I'm also okay, again, with, that, with the injured list and option period for pitchers being extended to 15 days. So in reality, I'm okay with a lot of this. Mm-hmm. But the minimum batter for pitchers one just that that I feel strongly don't enough you think, about that. Don't that you think like a DH opponent would use similar arguments back in nineteen seventy three? 
And look, there's always a chance, again, every time there's a rules change, especially for baseball, people freak out. Some of the time, mm -hmm. at just being the national pastime, it happens. Remember the intentional walk uh, <laughs> yes. crisis two years ago? It's fine, people. And, you know, also pitch clocks, as much as there's controversy, just covering both the majors and the minors and covering a lot of the minor league games, and even talking to the players, they don't really notice it. it it's really not that big of a deal. It's not. Um, you know, J.J. Cooper with uh, our co-executive, our uh, co-executive co editor here, had a nice tweet stream the other day where he laid out all the changes that have come to football over the last few years, including how you can tackle, kickoff strategies. I mean, football has been every bit as hands-on in changing the rules of the game, and more so than baseball. No one's sitting here declaring the game is dying. So, I, yes, changes are always going to be inevitable. That's baseball, that's life, that, that's anything. Mm -hmm. But I think that you can always, there are changes that are worthwhile and some that can be, I don't want to say too extreme is the word, but maybe unnecessary or pushed a little far. And I'm just, you know, clearly the Major League Baseball Players Association feels the same way regarding the three batter minimum rule, and I'm kind of with them on that. I think we've talked that one. The, the big picture here, though, you take this announcement in context with the announcement a week ago about the rules changes that are coming to the Independent Atlantic League that Major League Baseball uh, is implementing as part of a partnership. Those get really interesting because now you're <laughs> talking about balls and strikes being called using trackman, talking about the mound being moved back two feet to 62 feet six inches in the second half of the season. Bases are being larger, which will, in theory, allow players to, you know, it's a little bit easier to steal bases. They get to the bases a little bit quicker. Um, in theory, again, they can, you know, more infield hits. So, so they're really toying with the gameplay there a little bit. A, you know, beyond just what you think of those rules, what do you think of the big picture here about Major League Baseball for really three years now when you take into account um, the mound visit limits they put in last year too, taking an active role in changing not just the, the rules of the game, but, I mean, Again, how balls and strikes are called, how many batters a pitcher can face, the size of the bases. I mean, details both large and small. I think it's fantastic. Um, and if they probably had gotten a minor league on board, they might have done that. But I think this is the next best option. And I think there's, there's something else that's going to happen. Now that we have TrackMan data on all these Atlantic League players, we're going to see a lot more Atlantic League players come over to the affiliated side. But regarding the rules changes in particular, I don't know where you come down on all these. I, the one that intrigues me the most is the is the is the uh, you know, the bases being enlarged and the mound being moved back. I think that those two factors in conjunction might have an impact on base stealing because we were just doing some back of the envelope math on that. You factor in the, sh the reduced distance between first and second base. You factor in the mound being two feet farther from home plate, thus increasing a pitcher's time to the plate. These factors could reduce, um, could have an impact of like four one-hundredths of a second in terms of a base runner could get to second base that much faster than he could have. And, and that is significant. That is absolutely a significant amount. And you, you mentioned uh, in our conversation earlier that we know how many bang-bang plays there are. Those extra four or five-hundredths of a second will result in a lot of differences in between safe and out. The one that interests me the most here, so, so again, 
limiting the mound visits, and in the case of the Atlantic League, there are no mound visits except for <laughs> pitching changes or medical issues. I think that might be a little extreme, but I'm okay with allowing one or two. Um, home plate umpire, there will still be a home plate umpire. We should, we should clarify that. It's not like they're just, you know, someone from up top is going to read a computer and signal ball or strike. There is a home plate umpire. The way it's written is home plate umpire assisted in calling balls and strikes by TrackMan radar system. I'm more okay with this, which is odd because I generally fall on the baseball purist side of things. I've just noticed in particular how many, particularly high to low on the strike zone, there's a lot of things being missed. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's important to get the ball strike call right. Um, this was a few years ago, and the data's changed, but, but Matt Calkins, who at the time was a writer for the San Diego Union Tribune, did a story about different umpires and the sizes of the strike zone and, and found, I mean, we're talking significant differences in just how many inches are being given by various umpires. That con and, and again, you learn even from little league and into high school, different umpires having different zones, different things will give you, and you learn, you adjust, that's part of the gamesmanship and that's fine. But to me, the gamesmanship isn't worth, you know, just to, to use an example here that, that's sort of famous is 1998 World Series, uh, Potters and Yankees, Potters are up. Mark Langston throws what is very clearly strike three to get out of the inning. The Potters leave, you know, leave intact. The umpire just blows the call. Tina Martinez. Tina Martinez, next pitch, or later in that bat, grand slam, changes the entire dynamic of the game. I'm okay. I think we need to get the balls and strikes called right, mm -hmm. particularly come postseason play. Uh, we've seen umpires being tracked closer because of that with, you know, the Quest Tech system and, and all the various, uh, you know, tracking system that's publicly available now where you can really see what umpires are doing a good job and what aren't. But I, I'm okay with the concept of bringing TrackMan in to help call balls and strikes. I'm not inherently opposed to it. That said, I want to go see how it actually works in right. practice this year because it could seem like an okay idea on paper and then in, in practice it's just a disaster. Yeah, uh, this is the perfect uh, a lab in which to test it, the Atlantic League, you know. So, <laughs> I guess the, what I'm most afraid of is it like becoming like a wiffle ball thing where the pitcher is just trying to aim to just nick a part of a strike zone. And we're going to see a lot of like, pit, like high breaking balls that aren't really hittable called strikes, you know. That, that's my biggest concern. Again, I, I'm in, this is not one I'm ready to bang the table and say I'm for it, I'm against it. Like you said, I want to see how it plays out. You know, you mentioned that you think it's fantastic that, that Major League Baseball is taking such a proactive role in instituting a lot of changes around the game. And I think it's important to remember that, again, baseball is not a stagnant game. It has changed many, many, many times over the course of its 125 years of, of professional leagues being played, 100, 135 years now, going back to the 1870s. And it's not like it's coming out of nowhere. The average time of game for, for baseball games never crossed three hours in its entire history. And then I believe it's now five times in the last six years the average nine in the game has crossed three hours. I'm not going to sit here and say that getting down to two hours and 50 minutes is going to solve all of baseball's <laughs> imperfections, but creating a better pace is an admirable goal. And again, going back to a lot of the purists who tend to be of older age, 
you know, it was a two and a sub two and a half hour game for most of their lifetimes. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm okay with getting the pace up, making you know, doing some things to help that. Um, I'm just, I don't know where the line is when it's too much. I'm willing to let a lot of these play out. I just, the three batter minimum role again is one that kind of overshadows some things to me. Yeah. And then on top of that, the players union <clears throat> shooting themselves and the, shooting their future members in the foot just makes me shake my head. Those, those are my two biggest takeaways in terms of shaking my head. It's not only an admirable goal, it's probably an essential goal to attract young fans. Like, I don't think I would have become a baseball fanatic with the product that, that's been played in the last few years had I had this been my introduction to baseball. Uh, fanatic. I'm, I'm not willing to, to go there, but... That's just my take. You don't have to, you don't yeah. have to counter it. I mean, I, I will say, so we go back, um, what year were you born? 78. 78. When would you say your first? 88. Okay. So 1988, the average length of game was, was two hours and 45 minutes for a nine-inning game. Um, today, the average time of game is, it was three hours exactly last year. It had been 3.05 the year before. So, Like when you look at one data point, 15 minutes isn't much, but you multiply that by 162. That's a lot. Right. You multiply it by 162 games, and we've seen particularly in the postseason, yes. length of games have gotten longer. And, and again, that's where I do want to give credit to Major League Baseball for, now it says time reductions are subject to discussions with broadcast partners, but it seems like Major League Baseball is at least being proactive and saying, okay, this isn't benefiting anybody having, you know, two, at times it's been two, two minutes, 25 seconds, but the, rea the real dead time a lot of times has been closer to three minutes, sometimes three and a half minutes in the postseason games. And I, I'm okay and I applaud Major League Baseball taking a stand on that and saying, look, if, we're, if, our, if the real time between end of inning to start of next half inning is closer to three, three and a half minutes, if it's three minutes times depending on how the game goes, 18 half-inning breaks, that's a huge amount of time. Mm -hmm. That's 54 minutes of dead time. And I think it's admirable to re reduce that, even if it's you know one minute across the board, that extra 18 minutes, compound that with some pace of play initiatives. Again, shaving those 20 minutes of, of dead time out of games is helpful. Well, guess we'll see how it all shakes out. Matt, now that all these changes have come, I think we know there's going to be more. What change do you want to see next, and is there a change you're wary of seeing next? Uh, what I want to see next is what I led with. I think the DH, it's past due for the DH to come to the National League to kind of get it up to code with the rest of um, professional baseball, aside from the Japanese Central League, I believe is the only other league that, that doesn't operate with the DH. I'm, I'm coming around on that one. I, I, again, I'm not, it's not an issue I'm going to die on a hill over either way, but I, I can see the merits for it. Again, I, 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 I'd be interested in seeing them take this to the next step. I'd, I'd say limit mound visits to three a game, and I would also be interested in seeing them, uh, you know, expand that definition of, of when a position player can pitch and make it nine or ten runs and, and make sure it's really only in the largest blowouts. What I'm wary of seeing, I think it would be not good at all to move the mound back, 62. I, I think that's, that's too much for me. I'm also, you know, the size, the size of the bases, again, this is just the purest in me, changing some of the fundamental aspects of the game. I'm, I naturally kind of blanch at that, but. 
But keep in mind, these rules were codified in 1893. No, and again, but that's the thing. There's, there's, <laughs> there wasn't. There wasn't. Mountain height has been changed. Yeah. Said. Sense. Mound distance was codified in 1893 when Joe Sheehan has a column on this issue where the average pitcher was bumping six feet. You know, the average pitcher now is something like six four. Yeah. Look, there's no question that that. <laughs> I'm not. Say, I'm not saying I'm necessarily a proponent of the idea. I'm just saying I want to see it in practice. And there, there's a point. Rules are changed because circumstances change, and you can argue whether or not you like a rule, but what isn't arguable is that the circumstances have changed. The game has changed, and it's not the worst in the world for any company. Again, whether we're talking you're in manufacturing, finance, legal world, or you're running a professional baseball league, change is inevitable. You have to adapt to the situation around you, and, and I don't think it's a bad thing that there is intent to improve the game, it's just a matter of executing it. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll see what happens. It's uh, it's going to be an interesting 2019 season and a really, really interesting 2020 season on top <laughs> of it. We'll, uh, we'll see how all this plays out in practice. Uh, for Matt Eddy, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, feel free to give us some feedback on iTunes. Let us know if you like the podcast. We're uh, going to continue churning them out, and uh, we appreciate all your listens. Hope you have a, a great Friday and a great rest of your weekend. Thank you for listening, everybody. <laughs>